and welcome to Market Matters, Thompson's Hines podcast series that explores critical legal and regulatory issues affecting the investment management industry. I'm Cassandra Borchers, a partner in the Investment Management Group. Today's topic is top 10 compliance trends, and we have Todd Sipperman, founding principal of Sipperman Compliance Services, who has agreed to sit down and share his insights. Todd has over 25 years experience in compliance and the investment management industry, is a prolific commentator, and I'm absolutely thrilled to get his insight today. Todd, welcome to Thompson Hine, and thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So let's dive right in. You have identified the 10 most significant trends that define the current investment management regulatory landscape based upon your review of SEC and FINRA cases, statements, speeches, exam findings, and conference opinions. Can you list those trends, and then perhaps we can go back and discuss a few in more detail. Absolutely. And what I'm trying to do is to give people a sort of a 40,000-foot view of the regulatory landscape. So here, here are the, the top 10 trends, Cassandra. One, uh, the SEC expanding the, both the number and the types of examinations and enforcement actions. Another one, two, the SEC enforcement division targeting senior executives in enforcement actions. Three, service providers have been charged with a gatekeeping role to the securities markets to ensure market integrity. Four, compliance programs that do not pass regulatory scrutiny, oftentimes leading to enforcement cases. Five, we can't talk about regulatory trends without talking about fiduciary requirements <laughs> and the fiduciary rule. Of course not. Yeah, right, of course. Six, uh, the increased focus on private equity, particularly uh, those firms that registered following Dodd-Frank in 2012. Seven, cybersecurity. No good regulatory talk would be complete without a discussion of cybersecurity. Eight, additional constraints on marketing, distribution, and revenue sharing arrangements, which I know is of interest to everybody. Nine, whistleblowers and the whistleblower program. And ten, the rise of FINRA as its own enforcement organization. So I think these are the big 10 going on right now, Cassandra. I'd agree. That's a significant list, and we've seen focus in those areas as well. First, could we turn to the ever-expanding fiduciary responsibilities for investment advisors? As you said, this is a big one, and the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule was recently struck down by the Fifth Circuit, but portions of it are still in effect. Meanwhile, the SEC has published its own lengthy proposal for regulation best interest. There's a lot to dissect here. So first, let's talk about the DOL rule. So where are we at this point? <laughs> Existentially, no one knows where we are. Well, it, it's it, theoretically speaking, it's still a rule. Um, on June 9th of last year, uh, the rule went into effect. This sort of uh, broker best interest standard, to be distinguished from regulation best interest, went into effect. Uh, a duty of loyalty and a duty of doing things in the best interest of clients, prudence, loyalty, and it prohibits selling proprietary products and also making sure there's level compensation. So the uh, current administration has said they're not going to enforce the DOL rule, although it is, technically speaking, a, a rule into effect. But we have seen enforcement in other areas. For instance, in our own practice during examinations, we've seen OC ask questions about how you're ins ensuring your fiduciary responsibility. So, And we, we've seen things like Massachusetts uh, itself. The Massachusetts Securities Division has brought a case to enforce the DOL rule. But who knows? The Fifth Circuit vacated the rule, um, and I've talked to at least 10 lawyers who have 10 different opinions on what that means and where we are with it. But regardless, what we're advising the clients is I would follow the rule till we know for sure. Um, and I also think there's a concern that, you know, administrations change, as we've seen, and there's always this fear that in 2020 we're back to the DOL rule again. So we'll see what happens. 
Right. And just last week, the attorneys general from California, Oregon, and I believe New York asked that they be allowed to intervene because the DOL is not pursuing an appeal. So their prior request was denied, but as you stated, the rule is still in effect until the Fifth Circuit issues its mandate to vacate the rule. So, Todd, what's your prediction? <laughs> Where do you think we're end up? And, it, and, I mean, honestly, at this point, I know some big firms have already implemented those changes. So I have to ask, does it really even matter? Well, it, it, it matters and it doesn't matter. I mean, to some extent, the toothpaste is out of the tube. People are, are concerned about private lawsuits. They're concerned about the states. They're concerned about changes in law in the future. So I think the, the, the sort of the best practice is to follow sort of the no conflict of interest, best interest standard um, as, that's that's going on. But ha- having said all that, the SEC showed up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 2013, they, they were actually looking at a fiduciary rule for, for retail advisors and broker-dealers. The concept was to reconcile the advisor and the broker-dealer standard. So recently, a few weeks ago, actually, they proposed regulation best interest. Um, it was, and the idea is it requires a broker to act in the best interest of the retail customer at the time the recommendation is made, including series of recommendations, which we could talk about, and disclose conflicts. Um, what's really interesting is it's not a fiduciary standard, but it's not a suitability standard. It's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what that means in the middle, but it, it's, it's, a, it's above suitability, but not as strong as fiduciary. And it does not reconcile the, the, the standard with the investment advisors. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. I expect this is going to take this is going to be a long proposal period. I think that the comments are due in August, um, and I expect a lot of debate about this. But you know what? What's really interesting will be interesting. What really does it matter to advisors? Right. Right. So investment advisors have been subject to a fiduciary standard since 1940, since the Investment Advisors Act came out. So we get that question a lot. What really is the impact of these new regulations? I, I don't think it's a ton on on, uh, on advisors. I mean. Really, if you look at SEC enforcement cases, almost always the SEC alleges some form of breach of fiduciary duty. That's their Mm -hmm. catch-all concern is that the advisor acted in a way that is not in the best interest of the client. And so we have case law going back to 1940 on the outlines of of an advisor's fiduciary obligations. It's a little bit different than the common law fiduciary, although it's based in that, because you have all this, this case law, all these cases out there. But I, I think what, what, you, what you have here, especially with the SEC's companion release to regulation best interest, is they've sort of driven in some areas like best execution, where they're sort of given some guidance on what fiduciary is. Yes, that's, it's, and it's an interesting read, rather <laughs> lengthy one, but um, we'll have to see where that rule goes. And in fact, the SEC currently has a share class selections uh, disclosure initiative. That's a mouthful. Yes. But the idea is uh, allowing firms to self-report that they've violated some rules, some conflicts of interest, failed to disclose some items, and the deadline is closing in on us quickly. So the deadline to participate is a notice of intent to be filed with the SEC by June 12th. How else has this trend impacted investment advisors? Yeah, I mean, there before the the share class disclosure initiative, the SCDI rolls off the tongue better. Yes. Before that, the SEC has brought a lot of cases, several cases, in the mutual fund share class space, suggesting that an advisor did not recommend the lowest share class available and didn't monitor share classes that came out and switch clients who may have purchased a, a share class when a new one came out that would ultimately be uh, less expensive. And there's cases against the SunTrust Advisory Services, CATS, and I mentioned the names, Cassandra, not, not to 
not to wag the finger at those people, but just so for reference sake, where the SEC has said you know, they, they didn't offer the lowest share class and they deemed that a breach of fiduciary duty. But th- then, they, then they've gone on, and the SEC has really taken a hard look at RAP programs. And th- but they've gone deeper than just the share classes. There have been several cases. One of the big ones recently is, or last year, was the Royal Alliance case. That has become like a seminal case in this space. One, that they weren't offering the lowest share class. But ironically, they charged Royal Alliance with reverse churning. Mm-hmm. The reason it's ironic, the whole point of RAP was to prevent the churning problem. The idea that you would... Uh, Turn an account to increase brokerage. Well, with a wrap program, all the brokerage is included, so there's no there's no churning. The SEC's allegation in Royal Alliance was that well, they would have been the client looking in the past retrospectively would have been better off in a uh, in a traditional brokerage account that they actually ended up Royal Alliance would charge them more money because they were in the asset based account. Well, it's a, it's a tough argument because you're looking at everything retrospectively, not necessarily when the client. Uh, got into the account because you know how long they're going to be in there. And there's been a bunch of cases in this reverse churning. There's also been a lot of cases in in this. They, they, the SEC's call it trading away. It's really not trading away. But the concept being using brokers that are not part of the RAP program. So you, you, it's, a, it's an additional cost for the client where and, and the RAP sponsor saves money by not having to pay the RAP broker. And there's cases, uh, the Raymond J- R.W. Barrett and Raymond James were two co- companion cases on this sort of trading way. So the SEC has been really negative on RAP programs, everything from due diligence to reverse churning, trading away, mutual fund share classes. Our view as a firm is the SEC almost wants to get rid of RAP. That's what we sort of feel like. And, and we're seeing a lot of cases, and they're using the fiduciary uh, obligation to do that. What do you think is driving all of that? Do you think that's... Just their belief that their investment advisors, broker dealers are getting too rich off some of these investments, or is there something else there? Well, I, th- I think I think there is something else there. I think these cases, a lot of these cases, started as revenue sharing cases, where the advisor who was not a product sponsor was getting payola of some kind, either from the mutual fund company, from the clearing firm, mm-hmm. uh, sh- uh, sub TA fees, what, whatever it is. And the SEC started. This goes back about five years, I would say. The SEC started looking at the, these payola cases. And they and and a lot of these these cases came up in the rap context. And once the SEC started lifting the cover on these cases, they started seeing other things that they didn't like about the rap business. And I, I think that's where it's going. I actually think if you're a firm that is not taking revenue sharing, uh, you're probably uh, much safer than when you are. And I, I would say rap is certainly under the gun. Revenue sharing is something that really raises red flags with the OC folks and the enforcement folks. Mm-hmm. And real quickly, I, there's also pay-to-play out there. It's still there. You know, it, it was uh, pay-to-play was really hot in 2010, 2011. I mean, it, for us regulatory nerds, it was it was the cool thing because there, you know there was like real famous people. It was the New York State Common Fund and, and Quadrangle, and all these people were 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 paying to get access to retirement assets. Uh, the SEC adopted Rule 20645, which prevents uh, has restrictions on making political contributions to certain candidates. And there's a timeout, if you do, against managing money. And there's still several cases in this area. They're still looking at pay-to-play cases. And since, 2000, since they passed the rule following 2010, they've also defined 
what a contribution is, for instance, in-kind contributions, working for a candidate while working in your job, uh, the Goldman Sachs case, mm -hmm. um, is, is deemed to be a, uh, a violation of the rule. So this is a bit of a gotcha rule where, you know, a small contribution by a, a low-level employee can really hurt your business. So this work compliance really helps make sure you've got procedures in place to avoid tripping over this. Right, absolutely. So that leads us, I think, to targeting senior executives. Yes. I know the prior SEC chairperson sought enforcement against executives and service providers under her broken windows approach. We don't say broken windows anymore, Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> That's gone. Uh, but what can we expect to see out of the enforcement division under Jay Clayton? Well, uh, the bad news for senior execs in the investment world is Prosecuting senior executives is a bipartisan goal. Uh, it's a, both Republicans and Democrats think that's a really great idea. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not so sure, but the idea is they want to hold senior executives accountable for corporate wrongdoing as, as a deterrent. Because there's no, in, in Mary Jo White's words, and former uh, enforcement chief Terezny used to say, nothing scares people more than watching their friends go to jail. The SEC has specifically identified as individual accountability as, as a core enforcement principle. In late 2017, uh, the SEC announced that since Jay Clayton took over, that it was like a nine-month period, over 80% of standalone enforcement actions named an individual. So it, it's, uh, it, it's an ongoing goal, and, and, and they also are continuing to use control personal liability. But it's not really starting with the SEC. This goes really to the Justice Department, and I think this is what really scares people. And, it, it, and the famous or the infamous, depending on your perspective, mm -hmm. Yates memo. Yes, that is that Sally Yates, the same one who got fired over the, the so-called travel ban. But more importantly to investment professionals, she, she issued the infamous Yates memo, memo, as we call it, where uh, she directed the DOJ to change its enforcement manual to focus on co individual prosecutions in all corporate cases. The idea is we're going to get corporations to flip on individuals as part of their uh, enforcement strategy, and she called it the heart of the corporate enforcement strategy. That really has not changed yet at the DOJ. There's been some discussion about that, but there's really no political movement to you know exonerate uh, individuals. In fact, former Rep Henserling, who, Pat, who had advocated the Choice Act, which was, quote, a Dodd-Frank repeal, included additional SEC penalties. So I think this is something that, that that's going to continue, this sort of C-suite accountability across the C-suite and, and delving down into the organization. Right. So it's paramount for any organization, we always say, to have a good culture of compliance, and that starts at the top. Right. So, as you said, but it, it flows down into the organization. What about others in the organization? Who should be worried? We know, of course, a CCO has personal liability. So where do we stand on that front? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I always, uh, there's an old, what's the old joke? You're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. And in some ways, that, that's really what's going on. So you got, there's a ton of sort of CEO cases. The one I cite all the time is the Blumberg case. Uh, that, that was a case where they were, um, they were routing orders to an offshore affiliate, and that was one of the first times the SEC used Section 20B control person liability against the, the CEO of that division. They, did, they could not prove that he actually did it, but he was responsible for that business unit, and they held him liable and, and, and prosecuted him directly. Basically, they said he, he knew about the misconduct, he encouraged it, and didn't do anything about it and helped hide it. And honestly, in the investment advisor context as a broker-dealer, it's very rare to see an enforcement case where they don't also name a principle. That's mm -hmm. almost, it, it, when I see one that doesn't have a principle, it catches my eye at this point. But, you know, as you as you start to go down, it goes down the C-suite. It's not just the CEO and the CFO. This idea, you, no one in the investment world is going to get away with the sort of just doing my job defense. You know, that the SEC thinks we're all 
little fiduciaries out there. And, you know, there's a couple cases, uh, the Tyrell case, they, they brought a case specifically against the head of regulatory reporting for, for about dealing with customer reserve calculations, really deep in the organization. This, this, this is not a person making big bonuses. You know, this is a, a salaried person. New, uh, Nowak, he was a middle office trader charged with concealing commissions for his boss. And the one I hate the most is the Bagat case. It's a terrible case. Uh, the, uh, the woman who was prosecuted was essentially a low-level operations manager. Her boss was stealing from clients, and, and she was his assistant. And he actually left the country to avoid prosecution, and she was charged, and she was a very low-level employee. And then going on down the line, portfolio managers, traders, there's really nobody exempt. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a special place in the SEC enforcement basement for lawyers, lawyers. and compliance for lawyers mm-hmm. and compliance people. So for the lawyers out there, um, you know, it's only recently that the, the, the SEC has really gone after in-house lawyers because their view is that folks like uh, me and you, Cassandra, who are lawyers, should know better. You know, that's their view. And, and as a reference, you should take a look at the Diaz case. Um, she was a GC slash CCO. By the way, we have a whole conversation about uh, GCs that also serve as CCOs. That's yeah, a tough spot yeah, to be in. Yeah. And that was exactly the problem here. She knew about an issue with a client, and then in another client meeting refu- did not disclose that. And uh, the SEC said that she was not properly discharging her, her fiduciary obligations as a chief compliance officer. Of course, as a lawyer, she'd have a duty of confidentiality not to disclose that. So that was a very tough case. The other, another big case in this area is uh, SEC v. Moore. Um, again, a GC slash CCO charged with, in this case, they, he didn't make uh, full disclosure internally about a DOJ investigation going on. So, yeah, that, that has been, the lawyers have, have seen their fair share. And unfortunately, so have chief compliance officers. Right. And, you know, I, I've been very vocal that I don't think the SEC should ever prosecute a chief compliance officer unless they, they fundamentally participate in the fraud and benefit. It's sort of what I call the mob rule, the, mm-hmm. the, the, mob, the mob lawyer rule, if you will. But uh, a couple of big cases for those. The Bernard Young case has become the sort of standard. Uh, he was the CCO for, of the Stanford Trust, um, which was went down as a Ponzi scheme. The SEC never really proved that Bernard Young knew what was going on, that uh, he participated in the fraud, yet he was prosecuted personally and, and barred from the industry. A couple other cases, the BlackRock case, uh, having to do with a portfolio manager engaging in a series of conflicted transactions. Other than the portfolio manager, the CCO was the only senior executive charged at BlackRock. BlackRock was also charged, of course. And my the, the scariest case of all, in my view, is the Hater case, which was not an investment management. It was a it was a money laundering case. Uh, FinCEN uh, Hater was the anti money laundering and CCO of MoneyGram, and uh, FinCEN said he was liable twenty five thousand dollars, personally liable. For every SAR, S-A-R, he did not file. So he could have been liable for up to $4 million in their view personally. Mm-hmm. They settled for much less than that. But the, the point is you're seeing everyone responsible and everyone being held accountable. It's a frightening trend. It, it is a very frightening trend. And it's a trend. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change with this administration. There seems to be no backing off of that. So another trend, encouragement and protection of whistleblowers. Todd, I would love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think the whistleblower program, I think, will go down as one of the most significant changes of the last several years in in securities enforcement. It is a huge change. Really, anyone out there, uh, and every employee um, can blow the whistle on their employer. You can be a whistleblower with respect to a third party and have the incentive 
of getting paid uh, up to 10 to 30% of an award over a million dollars. Since the program went into effect in 2011, and now there's an office of the whistleblower, the SEC has, has awarded over $250 million, that's million, to more than 50 whistleblowers. And I know from uh, talking to people at the SEC and in speeches, they are, they are getting dozens, hundreds, thousands of whistleblower claims that they're, they're, they're combing through every day. And essentially, they've deputized the entire industry to, to look at their employers. And there's a lot, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting because what's also happened is back in the uh, 2000s, when George Bush was appointing all these conservative judges, they basically got rid of plaintiffs' class action securities litigation. There was a whole series of lawyers out there. That's all they did. They've gone away. Oh, no, they haven't gone away. They're back again <laughs> as whistleblower again. lawyers. They're contingent whistleblower lawyers. And the SEC enforcement folks have actually encouraged those folks to take these cases on contingency so that they can uh, encourage whistleblowers to come forward. So it's really changed a lot. So you get, anyone can be a whistleblower. There's this, there's this whole idea of competitive whistleblowing, people u- using whistleblowing to, on, on competitor firms. That's happened. And two other big issues there. One is you can't retaliate against anyone internally who is a whistleblower. You, ha- you have, uh, for those employment uh, folks out there, they have protected class status. You can't retaliate against them. F- for reference, take a look at the Wadler v. Biorad case as to uh, you know the whole idea of this was a general counsel who got a $7 million plus award because he was retaliated against. And also, companies cannot have anything in their employment agreements, covenants not to compete, which in any way restricts them from being a whistleblower. In fact, you really have to have language specifically says nothing in this agreement restricts you from going to the SEC and, and, and asserting your rights. So those are a couple of areas. There's been a whole uh, area of law as to what what you have to be to be a whistleblower, and the, the Supreme Court recently ruled on this in the digital realty case mm-hmm. about uh, going to the SEC to be a whistleblower, et cetera. So it's very interesting stuff. I think you're going to see this is going to this is going to continue to expand like a nuclear mushroom cloud. Certainly, I mean the, the SEC promotes it every they, chance they get. They absolutely do, and they got lawyers promoting. And there's nothing scarier to the securities industry than a bunch of contingency lawyers. Fascinating. Thank you. Sure. So next, I think we should perhaps turn to technology, cybersecurity. I've heard OC and enforcement talk about their reliance upon technology in their enforcement efforts and uh, perhaps even their ability to to do smaller, more targeted exams. Uh, They're certainly collecting a lot of big data and cross-referencing it across several different forms at this point. Uh, So technology has certainly changed the financial industry not just at the SEC and enforcement level, but within the industry itself. And cybersecurity remains a an area of great concern for the SEC and, and all of the regulators. So what's been going on on that front? Yeah, it's, um, again, I, I said up front, Cassandra, this is a 40,000-foot view. Really, the biggest issue in cybersecurity is protecting personal and customer information. That That's really where it begins and ends. So you always got to be thinking about this. Much like we talked about fiduciary and revenue sharing, the big issue in cyber is protecting uh, um, personal information against cyber criminals and hackers. The SEC has conducted at least two, as we call them, acknowledged cybersecurity sweeps to make sure firms have conducted uh, vulnerability assessments, et cetera. Interestingly enough, uh, we think that it's, it's kind of been a nothing burger, as, we, <laughs> as, as some people say. That They didn't really find a whole lot. They found that most firms are conducting uh, assessments. They're, they're doing policy procedures. They're doing penetration testing. They have governance. I mean, so they didn't find a lot of widespread issues. Um, they did warn about template procedures, inadequate employee training, questionable remediation. I think the point is with all this, 
I think what they're saying is with cybersecurity, it's strict liability. Mm-hmm. What yeah. Right? Second guessing, 50-50 right. hindsight. That's right. If you get hacked, they're not going to give you a break because you have good procedures. It's going to be, well, you had bad procedures then. So I think as a firm, as a CCO, and by the way, for CCOs that don't want to deal with cybersecurity, tough luck. Uh, it, it's on you. You have the obligation. You don't have to do a vulnerability assessment, but you got to make sure one's done. You got to make sure the corporate governance is done. You got to make sure you have an incident response plan. That's all on the CCO. And you got to make sure you want to make sure that you can't get hacked because that's where there's been problems. There's been several cases in that area where um, firms have been held liable because they got hacked. In one case where a third party mm-hmm. uh, server got hacked and right. they were held liable for not, not supervising that service provider. Yeah, so that all goes back, I guess, uh, first to the necessity of having an effective compliance program, uh, which requires customization, attention to details, all of the things that we've been talking about for years. But does the focus, uh, with the focus of cybersecurity, where does it extend beyond the protection of private data? Yeah, the SEC um, established this new unit within enforcement, which sounds like a, a new CBS television show called the Cyber Unit. Right. <laughs> um, which, if, if I work at the SEC, that's where I want to work because it, it sounds very cool. And their job is to focus on, on, on web-based activity um, and initial coin offerings. In fact, the first initiative, the first case brought by the Cyber Unit was not a, a cybersecurity case. It was an initial coin offering case, which is might be trend 11 uh, if we had time or that maybe the, the, as we go further down the road. Um, but cryptocurrency thing is a big, big deal right now. And, and ICOs, things like uh, disclosure, best execution, custody, all these issues are being worked out before the SEC is going to approve any funds. Absolutely. And, and cryptocurrency is one of my favorite topics, as I think you know. Yes. But uh, but for today, let's stay on cybersecurity and, <laughs> private, and privacy concerns. That's that would, a whole other podcast. Another podcast, yes. Uh, so how how can an investment advisor fund trip up? And, it, you know, rolled into that, we talked about constant vigilance, third-party service providers, you know, any suggestions there as to as to what a firm can do to really to protect itself? Yeah, it, 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 is, it is really a function of due diligence. One of the things I do like to talk about in these situations is this connection between the IT professionals and the compliance professionals because they do not speak the same language. The the, compli- the the IT guys sort of do what they do, and, and, and they don't want to hear about all the regulatory stuff. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you need to bridge that gap and let the IT professionals know what the SEC requires them to do from a security standpoint. So as a compliance person, yes, make sure there are vulnerability tests. But are they doing the right kind of vulnerability test? Make sure there's, uh, there's corporate governance. Is it the right kind of corporate governance? Do, do your, do, does your IT firm, which is oftentimes a third party, especially when you're a smaller firm, do they have a sensitivity to those regulatory issues? And there's been several cases where IT breakdowns have led to enforcement actions. Right. So, Todd, this has been great. You've had a a long, very successful career (laughs) reflecting on compliance in the investment management industry today versus where it was at the outset of, you know, these compliance rules, which really shepherd in the era of the CCO. What do you think has been the most significant improvement or impact for the investing public, how, you know, how has this helped everyone? Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's a, it's a great question, and I think from my perspective, I think the biggest issue is disclosure, particularly of conflicts of interest and remedying conflicts of interest. I I see the all the compliance rules, all the infrastructure we've built, all the testing we do, and I tell our own people when you're doing testing, the most important thing is to follow the money, mm-hmm. figure out. Who's making money, where, and how, 
And from there, you'll try to you can figure out if there's been wrongdoing. And if you look a lot at a, at a vast majority of SEC cases, it, it that's what they do. They follow the money. They see how and why an advisor is getting enriched by virtue of his her its relationship with the client. And I think that that's really what the regulation best interest and the fiduciary rule is all about for brokers. I think there's a concern that brokers more than advisors. Um, hide the ball, that, that there is Absolutely. more conflicts of interest, that suitability isn't a strong enough standard, that, um, you know, that, that they're, they're benefiting by virtue of their better information than they have with the clients. So I do think the, uh, the compliance rule really has helped the disclosure of conflicts of interest. I also think it has raised the general overall integrity of the industry. Most senior executives, at the very least, talk the compliance talk. They'll say it's important they may do it begrudgingly. We do a survey every year, Cassandra, and we have found that senior execs' attitude toward compliance has, has changed for the better over the years. When we first started, this, started doing the survey several years ago, it was necessary evil. Now what you're hearing them say is part of the business or even helps us keep or get business. You know, we, we really view it as, as, as a, a way to help play defense. That's what I tell our clients. You know, you do a lot of work on your portfolio side, on your sales side to get business, to get revenue. What compliance does is make sure that revenue doesn't walk out the door for reasons other than business reasons. If you make a bad portfolio call, okay, you've accepted that. If you make a bad regulatory call, that's just not smart because you can you can fix for that. So the other way I say it is go take risk. If you want to ride a motorcycle down, uh, you know, M Street, you can ride as fast as you can, but compliance is the helmet. Uh, so you don't you don't get yourself killed. I like it. There's a lot more ground to cover, but I think we're just about out of time. So Superman Compliance is actually publishing its take on these top ten compliance trends in an upcoming book, working title, protecting the franchise. How about that? Yeah. So we're hopefully uh, we've been working on this. So a lot of these these trends you can read deeper into this uh, as it comes out over the next several months. So. Uh, Uh, Look out for it. It'll uh, hopefully be on Amazon. Yeah, (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Any final thoughts? You've given us a lot of tips already. One more to leave us with. You know, I think the one more to leave you with is for those of you that are worried about being in the compliance profession, worried about where it's going to lead, worried about your position in the industry, it's a great profession. It it didn't exist 15 years ago. It's Mm -hmm. a a relatively new thing. Um, I got to say, I never expected to make my career in this space. And I love it. You know, I, 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 you're part of the business. You've got to know a lot of stuff. Um, it's, it's changing every day. Uh, there are a lot of elements to it. So whether you're old or young and thinking about a career in compliance, I'd encourage you to go for it. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Market Matters. I hope you found the information shared during today's program valuable. If you would like to learn more about today's topic or Thompson Hines Investment Management Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers and seven offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client services. Our smart path approach provides clients with service that is predictable, efficient, and aligned with their goals. 